So Lord, please open up our hearts to your word. Help us to really grasp what it is that you're trying to say to us tonight. And uh, work in our hearts and in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're moving through the Bible in an overview fashion. And because it's an overview, what we're going to cover tonight is not all-encompassing. What we'll cover this entire year is not all-encompassing. It is an overview. It's designed to be a hopefully helpful addition or a supplement to what you're doing on your own time in the Word of God. Because the Word of God is too rich for you to entrust to someone else to unpack it for you. It is designed and written by God so that you personally will open it up and read it and find application. And so church is a wonderful addition to that. It's also a great time to fellowship with other believers and kind of, you know, if you have an idea that you're trying to wrestle through or sort out, it's a great kind of sounding board to figure out if you're crazy or not, because sometimes you are. Um, But, you know, what happens in church should be a reflection or an addition to what's happening privately in your own heart. So if you're not in the Word on your own time, then anything you get out of this is going to be minimal, okay? But if you're in the Word saying, God, I'm, I'm coming to your Word, I want to hear and learn and grow, then what we're going to cover is going to hopefully help you as you're in that, in the Word, to say, okay, here's some sort of bullet points to help me not get lost in the, in the midst of what's going on and see, keep the big picture. And so that's where we're at. And so tonight we find ourselves in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. We're in what's called the Epistles of the Bible. So in the New Testament, we have the Gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. And then we have the Epistles, which are letters to the church, letters to the, the believers in Jesus Christ. And then as we get to the end of the New Testament, we'll hit the book of Revelation, which is a specific prophecy that we can look at to glean insight and understanding about what happens at the end of the world. So we're in the midst of Paul's letters to the churches. And in your Bible, they are not sorted chronologically. They're sorted by length because that's, I guess, the way we decide to sort them. Um, so, you know, the first epistle of Paul that we have in the New Testament is Romans. And then we have First and Second Corinthians. And then we have Galatians and Ephesians. And, and so, basically, all that to say, Galatians is probably the first or one of the first books that Paul wrote. It's, some people would say, you know, it could be this or this, but within a few years, Galatians is uh, one of the earliest books that Paul wrote, and I think that's helpful to keep in mind because it is, in a sense, one of the most critical pieces that we need to know. If you don't understand Galatians first and foremost, then the vast majority of what's going to come out of the scriptures is going to be confusing to you. Galatians is a super critical book for us to understand, and Paul wrote it to correct false doctrines that were already coming into the church. So he's very early on in the history of the church correcting something that was creeping in very quickly. And so it's something that comes up easily that people are able to slide into if they're not careful. And so Paul addresses it head on in the book of Galatians. But before we get into that, I want us to flip over, if we can, to the book of Acts. And we're going to go to chapter 14. And we're just going to read the first seven verses. It says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord 
who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So in Acts, this is the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. He's traveling around planting churches. And where he's at here is Galatia. Galatia was a region, okay? And so he's in these various cities in Galatia. And churches are getting started, but they're getting started in the midst of a lot of opposition. And specifically a lot of Jewish opposition. And that's important to keep in mind as we're looking at the book of Galatians. Because what you had is you would have people who came to faith, came to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross and rose from my sins. And by that, I'm forgiven and I'm righteous in the sight of God. Therefore, there were Jewish believers who were now saying, well, I don't need to, I don't need to follow all of the laws in the Old Testament anymore. And there were other Jewish believers coming in and saying, no, 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 Jesus is great to get you saved, but you have got to follow the laws or you're going to be totally messed up for your whole life. And what was happening was Christianity was starting to sort of hit this tipping point uh, in this region of, well, wait a second, are we saved by Jesus Christ or are we saved by Jesus Christ and then we have to do a bunch of stuff in order to make sure that we stay saved. And so Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia and he's going to straighten this out. And so Galatians is a very corrective letter. All right, the book of Philippians, Paul is just like, guys, I thank God every time I think about you. I'm so blessed by you. I can't wait to come visit you. Paul is going to get right down to business in Galatians. So chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle. He, is not, he wants to make sure we understand this is not going to be an opinion that he's giving. He's saying, I am stating what I'm about to say with with the authority of an apostle, with the authority of a leader in the church. An apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's saying, I have authority, and it's not authority that was granted to me by men. It is not authority that was granted to me because I attained a certain education status or went to a certain school. This is authority that was given to me by Jesus Christ and God the Father. All right, and then he says, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So he says, listen, grace and peace to you. And every one of Paul's letters, he says those. He says grace and peace, and he says them in that order. Because in this life right now, we want to have peace, right? We want to have a an assurance in our soul that everything's going to work out. That only comes after you've experienced grace. You can only have any kind of peace on life here if you understand the grace of God as it pertains to your life now and your eternal life. So it's always grace and then peace. And verse 6, Paul's just going to dive right in. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, guys, I cannot believe that you are slipping from this so soon. Slipping from what? Slipping from the, from the principle, from the teaching or the doctrine that Jesus Christ saves you by his blood, by the sacrifice that he paid on the cross, 
and that there is nothing you can do to add to that. That Jesus Christ is all and he's sufficient. And he says, you're turning to this other gospel, which isn't even a gospel. Gospel is a Greek word that means good news. He's saying you're turning from this good news to something else that you're calling good news, but it's not good news. And what they were turning to is this idea of legalism, this idea that we have to do certain things to make God love us. And he says, verse 8 of chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He says, okay, let's unpack this, guys. I'm here to tell you that grace is the way by which you're saved. If anybody tells you any other means of being saved, that person is cursed. That person should be cursed. He's taking this seriously. Grace is a big deal, right? If we don't understand this, this is very significant. And in verse 10, he says, look, I'm not doing this to seek the favor of men. I'm not doing this to be popular. I'm doing this because if you do not understand this, your entire Christian life will be messed up. And so he's saying, guys, I am, I am astounded that you are turning away from this idea so quickly. This idea that Jesus Christ is sufficient. And then, since we're doing an overview of the book, we're not going to go through the whole chunk, but chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul's going to give an overview of his background, his testimony, and basically he's going to demonstrate the authority by which he's saying this. Because he's making a pretty audacious statement. He's saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God, and if anyone comes to you with a gospel other than what I delivered, he's to be cursed. That's a pr pretty bold statement. And so he backs it up and says, basically, in case you're wondering, let's talk about my credentials. He says, I was one of the most ardent followers of legalism on earth. And then I got saved by the gospel. And, and he describes, he went into the wilderness for three years, and then he goes to Jerusalem to connect with the, the pastors there and basically say, here's what I'm learning. Is this correct? And they say, you're good. He goes back into the wilderness for 14 years. And then he comes back after the end of that and goes up to Jerusalem. And during that time, that 14 years in the desert, the Apostle Paul was discipled by Jesus Christ. And if you want to know exactly what that looked like, you can ask him when you get there. Because I have no idea exactly what that looked like. But for 14 years, Paul is instructed by God himself in here is the gospel. Here is the good news. Here is salvation. Here is grace. Here is what it means to be a Christian. And at the end of that 14 years, he goes up in chapter 2 to Jerusalem, to where the church is, to where the leaders are, and he goes up privately to say, okay, here's what I've been learning from God for the last 14 years. I need to make sure and verify that it's what you guys learned from Jesus Christ while he was on earth. And Peter and James and John say, yes, you're right on. That is exactly what Jesus Christ taught us. And Looks like we're both, we're both sharing the exact same gospel. We just have different ministry callings. So Paul was called to go reach the Gentile world. These guys were called to reach the Jewish world. They said, you know what? We're preaching the exact same gospel. Go with the blessing of God. And he says, okay. And then he describes, just to back up and say, you know, demonstrate that he's speaking with authority consistently. He says, and then by the way, when Peter came to where I was at at one point in time, he started getting a little hypocritical. And so I called him out on it in public and said, dude, 
why are you pretending like you got to live like a Jewish person and keep all the laws when you know that's not true? And so basically that's kind of Paul's claim to authority in, the, in that chunk of the, of the book. But then in verse 2, in, in, sorry, in chapter 2, in verse 15, he's talking to Peter at this point, or he's kind of elaborating on this point in time when he confronted Peter. And he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So when he's rebuking Peter, he says, Peter, you're a Jewish person. I'm a Jewish person. We both have the law. We both tried to keep the law. We both have realized that the law can't save us, and so we have both accepted grace. So why would we try and compel anybody else who hasn't even tried, you know, hasn't had a whole lifetime of growing up in the law and memorizing the Torah and all these things? These Gentile believers are coming to the Lord, and they're just coming to, the, to grace, which is the same grace we believed in. Why would we then tell them, that's great, but you need to go back and do the thing that we couldn't do properly? Why would you tell them Jesus saved you and now you got to go back into the law? And so... He's just pointing this out to Peter, but really to us as well, that the gospel is for the Jewish people, and by extension, we need to understand that we do not have to conform to Judaism to receive the gift of grace. We receive the gift of grace in order to receive the gift of grace. And he goes on in verse 17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he's addressing here one of the main questions that people have when you start to teach about grace, which is that, so wait, you're telling me that the grace of God is completely free correct. You're telling me all I have to do is receive it, correct? Right. You're telling me that when I sin and I ask God for grace, he showers his grace on me. And even as Paul says in Romans, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, right? Right. So then, we should go on sinning, right? Wrong. And what he's doing here is he's breaking down and he's saying, okay, the temptation is to go to the law because it gives us a point of comfort. It gives us a point of saying, you know what, if I can just keep these rules and work with the grace of God, then I'll be good. Because to just teach grace makes us uncomfortable. Because how do you know exactly when you've gone too far? When are you walking in sin versus stumbling? When are you rebelling versus making a mistake? And Paul says, so if I'm under grace and I make a mistake, does that mean that grace is not sufficient? No. What does it mean? It means we are not sufficient, right? If, if God gives us a free gift and we take it and then we mess up, that does not mean that God's gift was imperfect. It means that we are imperfect. He says, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. When I sin, I don't make the grace of God untrue. I demonstrate that I need the grace of God. And in a sense, it actually verifies how desperately I need it. He says, if righteousness comes through the law, if you can get righteousness by any other means, 
then the whole point of Jesus dying was, was a waste. The gospel's worthless if there's something else that you can do to add on to what God did. And so Paul is, Paul is laying into these people. He's saying, you have got to understand what we're talking about because Jewish Christians were coming into these churches and saying, you know what? That's great. Jesus is an awesome start. It's great to get you going. But now that you're saved, we need to talk about the program. We need to talk about the agenda and the vision and expected performance. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You've got to understand, either the grace of God is sufficient or the grace of God is insufficient. But you are not going to mix the two of them together. So as he's moving into chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by bearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... Are you not being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, guys, you're being stupid. Did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? When you were saved, when you were transformed by God, did that happen because you were awesome? Or did it happen because you believed the promises of God and said, Jesus Christ came to earth. He died for my sins. I believe that. I want to receive that. And I want to let that truth impact my life. How were you saved? You were saved by the Spirit of God transforming you. So if you were saved that way, but now that you're saved, you're still wrestling with, you know, I'm sinning more than I want to. How are you going to overcome your sin? Are you going to overcome it by the works of the flesh that couldn't even get you saved in the first place? Or are you going to overcome it by the Spirit of God, by faith in the promises of God? And so that's where he's going. He's going to start to make a shift here. And this is really important because we've got to understand grace in its full context in the Christian walk. And so what he does in chapter 3 is he breaks down and he goes back to Genesis, back to Abraham. And this is, incidentally, there's a lot of movements in the church today that would say, you know what? Let's just kind of focus on the New Testament. Let's focus on the words in red. Let's leave out whatever. No, 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 no. One of the most central doctrines to all of Christianity is the idea that righteousness comes through faith in God. And Paul, writing about that, says, let's go back to the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, Abraham is given a promise by God. And in Genesis, Moses, writing that book, says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is made righteous by God when? When he believes God. Now Paul makes this point. He says, the Old Testament law isn't given for another 400 years after that. 400 years before the Old Testament law comes around, before the rules and regulations of the law, Abraham is counted righteous in the eyes of God. And so he says, you've got to understand Righteousness does not come by the law. Righteousness actually comes through an older promise, an older covenant. This is bigger and older than the law. This is Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So righteousness comes through faith. In verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, well, why the law then? Which is a good question, right? 
If righteousness comes through faith, then why do we have the law in the first place? It was added, verse 19 still, because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So why the law? What was he saying? It's kind of a complicated paragraph. But he says basically the law is added to demonstrate to us our unrighteousness. The law cannot make you righteous. The law cannot raise you to life. Following rules, following regulations, trying to do the right thing will not make you righteous and it will not raise you to life. So why is it here? It's here to demonstrate to us. It does not raise us to life. It demonstrates how desperately we need to be raised to life. The law serves as a signal marker, as a pointer to Jesus Christ. It points both directions. It points back to Abraham and it points forward to Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is you've got to understand the law is teaching us that we need Christ. He says, verse 23, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which is later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is teaching us about Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law teaches us how badly we need Jesus Christ. But once we have Jesus Christ, it's kind of like when you graduate from high school, you don't have to keep going to high school. Right? That's sort of the point is you graduated. You are done. And he's saying, basically, you graduated from the law. The law taught you what it needed to teach you, and now you're under grace. So you don't have to, like, it would be stupid to get your high school diploma and then walk back in the next fall just for fun and say, I'm just here to do all four years over again because I just had so much fun in high school. Paul's saying, that's what you're doing if you say, I'm saved by grace and now I want to go back and just keep all the laws. So uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now one of the so one of the key things that happens through the gospel is that the gospel is now open to anyone. The gospel is not performance-based. It is not who can get the highest on a scale, who can keep the most rules, who can do the most good things. The gospel is, did you receive the grace of Jesus Christ? Did you receive the grace of Jesus Christ? And if you did, then the gospel applies to you. It doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you do. The gospel is the free gift of God. Grace, if you're ever trying to remember what is grace, sort of in a summary, you can remember like this. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is that God gives us all of his goodness and all of his fullness. Why? Because Christ paid the price. Christ took the penalty for all of our sins. So all of us, it doesn't matter where you grew up, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter where you went to school, all of us have received, have the opportunity to receive the grace of God. But now he's going to start to point something out to us in chapter 4. 
And he says, now, he says, you know, we're heirs according to the promise of God. Basically, we are partakers of this promise that God made to Abraham. The promise that Abraham received that Abraham believed God and it was counted to right as righteousness. We're heirs of that promise. We're heirs of God's promise to Abraham when God said, in your seed, meaning Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we're part of that promise because we are part of all the nations of the earth. In chapter 4, he goes on to basically, he's talking about what it means that, you know, we're kind of under the law and we're under the law, kind of like a teacher, and now we're not under the law and we're heirs of the promise of God. Verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, Because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the law just makes you a slave. The law just makes you aware of how much of a slave you are to your own flesh, your own appetites, your own lusts, your own desires, your own cravings. The law just shows you that you're a slave. The, the gospel takes you out of that and brings you into the fullness of God's promise. You're now an heir. You're like, a, you're a child of God. And because you're a son of God or a daughter of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Because you receive the grace of God, the spirit of God comes into you. And this is important. This is really important to understand because what we're going to go into here through, through the rest of the book, Paul's going to make the point, no, following rules does not make you any more righteous. But because you are made righteous, the Spirit of God is now here to help you walk in righteousness, to help you live righteously. You are not going to be any more loved in the eyes of God because of anything you do from here on out. You're not going to be any more holy. You're not going to be better than anybody else. But you're given the gift of the Spirit of God to help you walk in righteousness because we live in a cause and effect universe. And so you cannot, you know, you can't say, oh, I do good things, therefore God owes me good things. But you can live in a way that, you know, the Bible says what you sow, you'll reap. You can sow in a way that you will reap blessings and you can sow in a way that you will reap consequences. So that's where Paul's going to go on really for the rest of the book. Um, Verse 8, he says, However, at that time of chapter 4, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. But, verse 9, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Once, you're, once you've been a slave and you've been set free, why would you go back to being a slave again? Right? Not just like you were set free and now you're, you know, scraping out a living on the streets. You've been set free and now you're heir to all the promises of God. All the richness that he's offering us, right? This is not like, you know, I was eating better when I was a slave. No, no, no. This is, you're not just like, you didn't go from a fed slave to a free beggar. You went from a abused slave to a child of the creator of the universe. So why would you go back to something as worthless as, let's keep rules to see who's best. And so, that's really where chapter 4 is going. In chapter 5, he, he's just going to elaborate further on this. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So God set us free. Why? So that we could be free. So that we could not walk in bondage. Therefore, he says, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. God set you free. 
So don't put yourself back in a position where you're a slave to sin. Don't put yourself back in a position where you're in bondage, where either to sin or to just trying to be good in your own strength. Why would you do that? You've already, the law has already demonstrated that you can't do it anyways. So why would you try and be good in your own strength? He says, behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So the Jewish believers or the Jewish legalists that were coming into the churches here were specifically, they were pushing for keeping the whole law, but they were also pushing specifically that all the men who had gotten saved as Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And Paul says, you know, if you're getting circumcised just to make yourself feel like you're more holy, then you're taking yourself out from under the grace of God. And so he says, uh, Christ is of no benefit to you. The gospel's worthless if you are going to try and make yourself righteous by works of the law. If you're going to try and attain righteousness through what you do, then the gospel has no point. If there is, if there is any way to righteousness apart from Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ's death was a waste. Verse 4, he says, You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. If you're, you are cutting yourself off from the gift of God. Verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. What makes you righteous? Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What makes you righteous? When you believe the promise of God. And so he's saying, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. What matters is you have faith working in your heart through love. And it's a great question to ask ourselves. Do I, have, do I believe what God has said? Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe the promises that Paul is outlining here? Because deep down, sometimes especially if you've been a Christian for a while, it's like, yeah, I know that I'm saved by grace, and I know that God doesn't really love me anymore for doing good things, but I bet he likes me just a little bit more for doing good things. I bet I'm just, I'm not like, you know, a super Christian. I'm just a little superer than you, right? That's sort of how we like to get in this little train of thought. And Paul's like, no, I'm sorry, no. And he goes on in verse 12, referencing these guys who are telling everybody to get circumcised. He says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And the appropriate way to translate that is, I wish that the people who are telling you to circumcise yourselves would go ahead and castrate themselves. Paul takes it seriously. If you're trampling on the grace of God, he's saying, why don't you just take that idea and render it sterile? That idea needs to die. And so it's a little bit blunt, but Paul is, is delivering a serious message. But verse 13 of chapter 5 launches us kind of into a, well, not launches us, but continues a thought that we need to really keep paying attention to. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You were called to freedom. You were set free by God. The grace of God abounds. It abounds even more where your sin is. Therefore, what? Therefore, don't use that freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh. God did not set you free so that you could make yourself a slave all over again. He set you free so you could glorify Him and so that you could, through love, serve one another. 
Your mission in life, your call in life, by the grace of God, is not to worry about yourself. It's to worry about glorifying the Lord and blessing the people around you. You're on the bottom of the list. I'm on the bottom of the list. Our, our goal needs to be service to others. We're called to freedom. We're serving other people because we are so free, we can't stand it. We're so free, we just don't know what to do with all that freedom, so we're going to bless somebody else with it. Not, we're so free, therefore we're going to hog it all. All right? And remember, the context here, he says, you're saved by grace and nothing else. But the grace of God brings you into a relationship with the Spirit of God. And because of the Spirit of God in your life now, you have the opportunity, the power, the ability, and the call to walk in righteousness. You're not ever going to be saved by righteousness. You're not ever going to have God love you more because you're righteous. But because he has made you righteous, you have the opportunity to now walk in that righteousness, to be a partaker of what he has made you. And so verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets its desire against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So do you ever want to not walk in sin? Do you want to walk in victory over your sin? Well, here's what you do. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You can only serve one master at a time. You're either serving the Lord or serving your flesh. If you are walking in the Spirit of God, guess what? You're not going to be sinning. It's really hard to be actively praying for someone's salvation and be bitter at that person at the same time. Right? It's, being, it's hard to, to praise God for his sustenance while you're trying to cheat someone else. If you're walking by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And he says, they're warring against each other. Your flesh and the Spirit of God are at war. So if you're led by the Spirit, you're going to have the power of the Spirit. We've talked about this, you know, we talked about this in the book of Acts. We talked about this in the book of Romans. You can go back and listen to them. We, we've covered this a lot over the last several weeks, okay? But we're saved by grace so that as we're made righteous, we now have an opportunity to walk in the righteousness that God has, has brought us into already. In verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. So if you're ever trying to figure out, am I walking in the spirit or in the flesh? Well, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're subjecting yourself to these things, you are not walking in the spirit of God. And Here's the deal. You're not saved by works. We've got to, you can, you beat that till the day you die. You are not saved by works. But here's the deal. If you refuse to walk in righteousness, then that means you're not walking in the Spirit. If you're not walking in the Spirit, then the question remains, did you receive the grace of God in the first place that leads to the Spirit coming in and giving you righteousness? So you are not saved by righteousness, but righteousness demonstrates the renewal, the new life that happens when the grace of God makes you righteous. And so he said, but, so those are the works of the flesh. If you're walking in those, repent. Ask God for his grace. And now that you have his grace, you have his spirit, you, now you have his spirit, 
Don't walk in those. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Now interestingly, if you're a grammar snob, Paul gives us a bad sentence here. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. He says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. The fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of God working in your life is going to manifest in the love of God working through your life. And the ripple effects of love, of the love of God, is not, you know, romantic feelings or whatever else. No, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can look at these and, and pretty quickly get an assessment. Am I walking right now by the Spirit or by the flesh? It's a pretty straightforward list. Now, just a couple of things to point out. He says joy, not happiness, right? Happiness is a feeling. Joy is a, is a choice to walk in. It is not circumstance-based. It's usually actually the opposite of circumstance-based. It's, uh, it's not I'm happy because this is happening. It's I'm joyful in spite of the fact that this is happening because I recognize that the promises of God still hold true. He also says kindness instead of niceness. Sometimes the kindest thing you can do is very... is kindly tell somebody that they're doing something wrong. That they're being stupid, or they're being an idiot, or they're walking in sin, or they need to repent, right? Or they're, they're engaging in a behavior that's going to destroy them. Being nice is just telling, you know what? How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. That's great. You're so great. I'm so great. Isn't it great how great we all are? That's nice. It's also kind of disgusting. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And he said, now, those who belong to Christ Jesus... I've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, if you really recognize the scope of what Jesus went through when he suffocated on the cross and died from suffocation and blunt trauma and blood loss after he had, you know, both shoulders dislocated and some of the most painful nerves in his body cut open, if you really understand that and you have received that gift and now you belong to him, you don't want to see Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. You want to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father. What do you want to see on the cross? Your sin. You want to say, I want my sin to die. I don't want to have to relive the death of Christ that brought me into that point of grace over and over and over again. I want to watch my sin die and be in a relationship with God as he is right now, as he really is seated on the, at the right hand of God as the risen and resurrected God and King, Right? I don't want to waste this time on earth just going back and, and having to start over. Like, you know. He said, no, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Take your temptations, take your sins, and crucify them. And that's not because that makes you more righteous. It's because you're already righteous. Because God has made you righteous, that's what you should do with your flesh. That's what you should do with sin. Because you're righteous, not to make you righteous. And then verse 6, as he's wrapping up, he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a tr any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. So what, another fruit of the Spirit, or another kind of ripple effect of being filled with the Spirit of God, is if somebody you know is walking in sin, 
gently correct them. And be careful that you don't wind up getting trapped in the same sin yourself, right? Don't be a hypocrite, but also don't, uh, don't get so close that they drag you down if they're, if they're going to drown. Uh, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So he says, okay, again, you're not righteous because of what you do. You do what you do because God has made you righteous. And so understand that it is a cause and effect universe. If you sow wickedness, you will reap consequences. If you sow righteousness, you will reap life. You will reap the blessings of God. And he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Sometimes fruit takes a long time to come on the tree. Right? A tree actually needs a winter to sort of bring it to a point where it's ready to get the sap flow in the spring that it's going to need to then bear fruit through the summer and harvest in the fall. A tree needs an entire year to make fruit. Sometimes in our life, you sow for a while and you don't see the fruit right away. So if you're saying, hey, I'm trying to walk in the Spirit. I'm trying to, you know, have these fruits of the Spirit be evident in my life and I'm just not seeing it. It's just not coming. I'm, I'm trying and trying and trying and I'm, and, and, you know, I'm kind of starting to worry like, am I really saved or does God really love me? He says, hey, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. If you are walking toward the Lord, you'll bear fruit. Some of us bear fruit faster than others. That's fine. Fruit trees do that. There are different kinds of fruit trees, right? But don't lose heart in doing good. And then he says, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. He said, you know what? I really don't need all these Jewish legalists to make my life more complicated. I'm already branded. It's like, I don't need to be circumcised or whatever else. You know, we talked about in 2 Corinthians last week. You know, it's like I've been five times. I got whipped 39 times. I've been beaten three or four times. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been in danger from this and that and this and that. And I've almost died. I've been stoned to the point that I either was dead or they thought I was dead, whichever one it was. I really don't need you to tell me what to do. I just need, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Amen just means so be it. So, as Paul wraps up the book of Galatians, he says, okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, brothers and sisters. So be it. So be it. May that be what God pours upon us in full measure. Right? And as we receive that grace, may it then cause us to walk according to his spirit. Because the spirit is the gift that results from the grace. And so... If we receive the gift, we take advantage of the gift, right? We walk in the gift. We let that gift, we let the Holy Spirit transform our lives. Not to make us righteous, but because we're righteous. So Lord, we thank you for the book of Galatians. Just the, the incredible, incredible message that's there. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we can stand in the grace of God and know that you have done an incredible work, not because of anything we've done, but because you loved us. Because of the gift of all of your riches and your goodness and the life that you're offering us through the punishment that Jesus Christ took for us. 
So I pray that that truth, that reality would transform our hearts, that we would not shy away from that, that we wouldn't dilute it or diminish it, but that we would stand in grace. I pray that we would not turn away and seek to be made just by the law, but that we would walk in the Spirit so that we would not fulfill the works of the flesh. Help us to bear fruits of righteousness. Have your way with us, Lord. Go before us. Use us for your kingdom and your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.